Welcome to the next week in our series called The Tender Commandments. And again, just a quick reminder, we call these the Tender Commandments, not just the Ten Commandments, because these aren't hoops that we have to jump through to prove to God that we're worthy of his love. These are a gift from God. They're God telling us how we can best live our lives. They're God giving us the opportunity to know what's best for us and how to live in a way that our lives will have the most meaning and purpose and be the most in line with his will and his plan. Now, this week, we are taking a look at the sixth commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Um, I want you to do something for me. Raise your hand. I mean, really do this. Raise your hand if you've had that birds and bees conversation with someone. Come on, don't just sit there. Literally, raise your hand if you've done that, whether you gave the talk or you had the talk. Now, does it feel awkward sitting there with your hand up? I bet you it doesn't feel as awkward as it did when you actually had that conversation. It's an awkward subject, isn't it? So I promise that we're going to treat it carefully and respectfully. This is going to be a sermon appropriate for all ages. But we do want to take a look at this commandment. It's one of the top ten. It's one of the things that God says is most important for our lives. Now, when we look through the Bible, this is the definition we find for adultery. Adultery is literally intimacy with anyone other than a marriage partner. Now, Jesus actually talked about this commandment and defined it even more broadly than that. Look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said, You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, anyone who looks at another person with lustful intent has already committed adultery with them. In other words, what, what Jesus is saying is, this commandment is not just about what we do physically, but it's what we do emotionally. It's what we think about. Our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions can violate this commandment as well. It's a pretty broad definition, isn't it? And that's going to be important for us to remember as we look at this commandment together. Now, to do that, we want to take a look at what may be one of my favorite stories in the whole New Testament. We find it in John chapter 8. Let me set the scene a little bit for you. Uh, Jesus has come to Jerusalem for a feast, a festival that was going on there, the Feast of Booths. And the festival has ended now, but Jesus has stuck around in Jerusalem for a little bit. And we're told on one morning, uh, early in the morning, he came to the temple area and he sat down and began to teach. And people from all over came to hear Jesus. You just picture him sitting out in the temple court and, and there's a crowd of people encircling him. But suddenly we're told there's a commotion and, and the circle parts And a group of religious leaders, Pharisees and teachers of the law, kind of push their way through the circle, and they've got a woman with them. A woman that we're told they had caught in the act of adultery. means they had literally witnessed her sin. And uh, now they had grabbed her and they were throwing her in front of Jesus. I, I imagine that she's got like a blanket wrapped around herself or something. She didn't have time to, to fix her hair or anything. They just grabbed her. And they've just thrown her in front of Jesus, in front of this crowd. And then they say this to him. They say, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. And they point out to Jesus that in the Old Testament, the punishment for adultery is to be stoned to death. And they say to Jesus, Jesus, what do you want us to do with her? Should we stone her to death? Now, The reason they're doing this really has nothing to do with the woman. She's just a a pawn in this. She's being used by them. In fact, in verse 6, it tells us why. It says that they said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. You see, 
the people in Jerusalem in Jesus' day were under Roman government rule. And the rules in the Roman government were that no one could execute a prisoner, no one could kill someone unless the Roman government sentenced that person to death. So the religious leaders believe they've kind of got Jesus caught. If Jesus says, go ahead and stone her to death, then he's violating Roman rule and they can accuse him of violating that Roman rule. A big deal. But if Jesus says, no, don't stone her to death, then he's sympathizing with the Roman government and throwing away the Old Testament. He's avoiding um, the Old Testament rule. And they can accuse him with the people of not caring about God and his word. They think they have Jesus caught. But honestly, there's something even a little deeper than that going on here. You'll notice that there's a woman caught in adultery, but not a guy. In other words, the religious leaders let him go. And they've used her to try to trap Jesus. Now, the crowds would have instantly recognized that. They wouldn't have been surprised by it. I mean, Roman rule said a husband could divorce his wife for adultery, but a wife could not divorce her husband for the same thing. A Jewish custom of the day said a man could divorce his wife for any reason, but a woman could not divorce her husband for just any reason. So the people watching would have been used to women being used by the society around but not Jesus. See, if they knew anything about Jesus, they would know that Jesus treats women differently than society around him. Jesus treats women with respect. Just a few chapters earlier in John's Gospel, Jesus uh, treats the Samaritan woman with incredible care and respect. The, the disciples are stunned by how Jesus talks to and treats this woman. Jesus had these two women, Mary and Martha, the, these sisters that he used to uh, go to their home and he taught them and uh, uh, together with their brother Lazarus, they were some of Jesus' closest uh, advisors and disciples. All throughout his ministry, wherever Jesus went, Jesus treated women differently. And now here's this woman thrown in front of Jesus and this crowd. And the crowd was probably not only wondering, is Jesus going to violate biblical law or Roman law? But they were wondering, what's he going to do? How's he going to treat this woman? Will, will he treat this woman differently than the religious leaders expect? And of course, that's what Jesus does. He treats this woman differently. Let's, let's see how the story goes. We're told that when, when they make this accusation against Jesus, at first, Jesus really doesn't do anything. He doesn't say anything other than it says he bends down and he wrote with his finger in the ground. Now, interestingly enough, the word here means literally he was writing, not just doodling or drawing. He was writing words in the dirt. Now, I've got a whole bunch of questions I want to ask Jesus someday in heaven. And one of them is, what were you writing? What was he writing? We, we really don't know. Here's some theory. Some, some religious leaders uh, today believe that what Jesus was writing is uh, he was writing a list of the names of the people that were standing waiting to throw those stones. In other words, he was letting them know, I know you, I know who you are. And the implication there is, I know what you've done too. Others think that he was not writing their names, but he was writing a list of sins that all of them were guilty of. He was reminding them that you've accused this woman of a sin, but you guys are sinners too. A, a third possibility is maybe he was writing names, but not their names, but the names of other women that maybe they had been unfaithful with. Whatever it was, Jesus writes something in the dirt. 
And at first, it really doesn't have any effect on them. It says at first, they continued to ask him, what are we going to do with her? We're told then Jesus stands up and, uh, and he looks at them and he says, let the one among you who is without sin throw the first stone. In other words, he's saying to them, okay, if you've never done anything wrong, then go ahead, you can throw the stone. Now, the amazing thing is in this story, they get it. Whether it was what Jesus was writing or the way he said what he said to them, it pierces them to the heart. They get it. You know, years later, the Apostle Paul would write these words. He would write, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And they get it. They understand that. They know that they are sinners too. And so amazingly, they feel like they're kneeling right there with that woman. They, they look and, and they're saying, yeah, that's me. I, I've sinned too. I've fallen short of God's love and God's grace. And, uh, and look at what it says. It says, when they heard what Jesus said, they went away one by one, starting with the oldest, until Jesus was left alone with the woman. They, they look at that woman they see themselves, they recognize their sin, and, and by the way, I, I think it's um, ironic that it was the oldest of them that got it first. I, I know I've learned in my life, the older I'm around, uh, the, the, the older I get, the more I'm around, the more I realize my own faults and failings, the more I'm honest with myself about how I've fallen short of God's plan for my life. Th that's me kneeling there. And... Uh, they drop their stones and they walk away. Now it's just Jesus and the woman. And, uh, and Jesus looks at the woman and he says to you, hasn't anybody condemned you? And she says, no. And now's the moment, right? What's Jesus going to do? Because honestly, he is without sin. He could condemn her. He, we might expect, will condemn her. But he looks at her and he says this, then neither will I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He gives her a new chance, a new start. He looks at her with, with love and with mercy. I picture Jesus reaching out and putting his fingers under her chin and, and, and lifting her face. She can't even bear to look at Jesus. And when their eyes meet, she doesn't see condemnation. She doesn't see judgment. She sees love and she sees grace. I don't condemn you, Jesus says. Now, folks, we live in a culture that is just um, over-sexualized. Do you know that over 60% of the movies made in the last 30 years are rated R? Sex sells is the byword in advertising. Everywhere we look, we are immersed in a culture that seems fascinated by this subject. And so if we are honest with ourselves, especially if we consider Jesus' definition that, that it's not just physically what we've done, but it's even what we've thought, what we've said, what we've desired. We're right there with that woman too, aren't we? Just like those people that were gathered around ready to throw those stones, Jesus looks at you and me and he says, okay, if you're without sin, go ahead and throw the stone, but we know we can't. We know that we deserve 
judgment and condemnation, just like that woman. But God looks at you and me, and uh, he looks us in the eyes, and instead of condemnation and judgment, he says, I don't condemn you. He says, I, I get it, you've fallen short, but that's what I paid the price for on the cross. That's, I, I died to forgive your sin, all your sin, even these sins that break the sixth commandment. You are forgiven, Jesus says. Now go and sin no more. I love the way Martin Luther put his explanation to this commandment. He said, we should fear and love God so that we lead a decent and chaste life in word and deed, and that husband and wife uh, love and honor each other. A chaste and decent life in word and deed. Now, I don't know what that means for you. I, I don't know whether that means you shouldn't see certain movies or should or, or shouldn't tell certain jokes or not or shouldn't put yourself in certain situations. It's probably different for all of us. But, but the goal is not to lead a chaste and decent life so that God won't be angry with us or that uh, so God will love us. He's not angry with us. He's forgiven us. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus says. Our goal in leading a chaste and decent life is because it's the best way to live our lives. We have a new start every day to live our lives in a way that are pleasing to God, but also best for us and for those that God has given us to love in our lives. I remember back when my son was a freshman in high school, one of our local public schools. And uh, he came home one day and he had a permission form uh, that he needed signed because they were gonna have an assembly later that week um, on sex education. And uh, we had to sign that, that he had our permission to attend that assembly. And so of course we, we signed it. And, uh, and I, I told Christian, I said, I'm really eager to hear what it is they tell you. So he came back that day um, after the assembly, and, uh, and I said, so, so what, what did you hear? What did, uh, what did they have to say? And he, he talked about some different things. He said, but, but Dad, he said, one of the interesting things is, as a, one of the people that was presenting was, a, was actually a pastor, which surprised me there in a public school. And he said, this is the way the pastor described it. He said, he said every time we're intimate with another person, he said, it's like you're taking your soul and you're, you're tearing a little hole in it, and you're giving a pit of your soul to that other person. Um, and, and the pastor challenged us. He said, I want you to think about that. And, and someday, he said, when, when you get married, if, if you have that opportunity and, and you give yourself to another person in marriage, think about that soul that you're going to give them. Do you want it to be full and whole and complete or do you want it to be full of a bunch of holes from what you've done in the past? I thought, you know what? It's actually not too bad. N not a bad description at all. But, but folks, here's the interesting thing. What we've learned today from this story is that, that God has forgiven us. God has the ability to, to repair our souls, to, to, to fix those holes, to, to make us whole and complete again. Because we are God's forgiven, loved children, our past is truly in the past. In fact, the Bible says it's gone and a new person has come. Each of us has a new opportunity every day. To, to let the failings of the past behind us and to move forward and live chaste and decent lives when it comes to our sexuality, knowing that God has forgiven our past and he's given us a new future. I pray that you would live today in that love and in that grace. Amen.